everybody. Welcome to today's episode of Help, I'm in my 20s. I'm your host, Brianna, with my lovely co-host, Emily. And we have a returning guest today, Olivia. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for letting me come back. I'm excited. Oh my gosh, of course. We had so much so much good feedback from your first episode, so we naturally had to have you back on. Um, and I honestly didn't know who else I would have come talk about <laughs> what we're going to talk about today. I feel like you are so well-versed um, and know so much about this. I would love for you um, to share your wisdom with the listeners. So we're doing um, another installation of our Race Matters series. Uh, we're going to be talking about white identity development. Um, I am not white, but Olivia and Emily are. And we've talked about wanting to do this episode because I think sometimes white people feel like they're not part of the racial identity conversation or even race um, in general. Um, and I know a lot of our listeners identify as being white. So we definitely wanted to create this space. Um, and I think we probably should just start off with why that's important and why racial identity um, development is important for white individuals and just kind of where that starts. Yeah. I mean, I think that just to like dive right in, um, I think that as you said, a lot of times white people have not done the work around their racial identities or they perceive themselves as like not having a racial identity. I think this is something like a narrative you hear a lot. And I see this a lot, like I study TV and you see this a lot on TV where white people will say things like, I have no culture or where people will say like, oh, you know, I have no ethnicity unless usually they're like a part of a stronger sort of, or not stronger, but sort of more historic ethnic minority of white people in the United States. All this to say, I think that for white people, their race is usually experienced as like it, in their own minds, as like an absence or a lack, right? But white people also know at the same time that that's not true. Um, I think all white people know consciously or unconsciously that like their whiteness holds power. Um, and I think it's not that hard if you are like really push someone um, to get them to admit that they know that they're white. But I think a lot of people don't think they know that, right? And so like they, this comes from um, Claudia Rankin who is an amazing poet. Um, and she in her, in a book she edited called The Racial Imaginary, she has a part where she says, white people know that they're white, but they can't know that whiteness accrues power. They can't know what they already know. That's not like a perfect paraphrase, but that's basically what she says. And I think that that to me is part of why it, I mean, the most important reason to study white identity development or to talk about it is because white supremacy structures all parts of society um, and invades all kinds of social relations. And so it's important as white people, like this is in many ways, like our problem. Um, and so I think that it's really important for white people to engage with their own racial identity development because like we know, you know, like white people, we know that we have social and racial power, but we don't, we pretend we don't know. And I think that it's an important part of the work to stop pretending you don't know that you're white and that that has social meaning, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, I love that. And that just makes me think of the first time that I ever thought about my whiteness was actually a class that I took freshman year. So not at our school, but the other school I went to that's called, that was literally called the power of whiteness. And it was the first time I'd ever had someone try to dive into it. And it was so crazy. So I love how you intro that. And maybe 
that's a good segue into just how you started your journey even of like diving into this and being willing to think about it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in terms of like my own journey, it's hard to like track because I think that a lot of times people say, especially when people talk about like white identity development or whatever, I think words like narrative or development suggest like a kind of linearity or sense. Whereas I think that for most people, white people and people of color, there's not like a neat or sensical narrative by which they came to understand like their racial identity. So I think there's the, there's for me, there's multiple entry points where I could like enter in here, right? But I will say like, I think when I was a kid, I was definitely sort of raised in a like racism is bad, but more colorblind kind of sort of social um, context, you know, it was more like, like my mom said we had peach skin, not that we were white when I was a kid. Right. And like, I understand why she did that. Right. And how that, and that makes sense. Right. In her color, like her colorblind framework at that time, which is not even really the case for her still anymore. Um, but I think that in terms of my sort of serious development beyond being like a kid raised in a colorblind context, probably started in high school. Um, I, there's this sort of moment, which I have been returning to more and more as an adult, even though I don't think I recognized how significant this moment was at the time, or even when I was at Westmont, um, there was this moment in my junior year English class where for some reason we had a substitute teacher and my main teacher had not changed his lesson plan. So he gave this up his lesson plan, which was for the class to debate whether racism still exists in America, um, which is like a very intense sub lesson plan, which you know, we don't have time to unpack all of that. But his lesson plan was that it was like one of those things where you stand on opposite sides of the room if you agree or disagree. So it was like, everyone stands up. And if you think racism still exists, go stand on the left side of the classroom. And if you think racism doesn't exist anymore, stand on the right side. And if you don't know, go to the middle. And if you're in the middle, at, at any point you're persuaded, go join the other side or whatever. So it was like this weird, like very embodied, nowhere to hide, like, sub exercise that my class did. Um, and I have been returning to this a lot as an adult because I think that this moment crystallizes a lot about my racial identity journey because so several of my best friends in high school, um, some of which I'm still really close with today, um, are like first generation Chinese American. And so they obviously had like experienced racism in their lives. And so I was like, yeah, like racism still exists. I know because my friends have experienced it. Um, and so I was kind of on that side. Right. And I remember there was all of these moments, right. Where it, it was almost like if this moment had occurred in a TV show, the reviews would have said it's too heavy handed because like the kids who were saying that racism didn't exist anymore were like, well, Obama is president and like affirmative action exists. And like the kids who were saying that racism does exist were like, my guidance counselor told me that there might be too many Asian people applying to this college, you know, like, so it was really literally like a very like on the nose moment, I think for me, where I was sort of, I, and I, but I think this also was an important moment for me because I couldn't identify any of this at the time, right? Like now I say things like that moment was a like, in which that was a moment in which the ideology of whiteness was so obvious and was made so explicit and was like stated, right? Like whiteness was not hidden in that moment. 
But I didn't have any tools to say that at the time. And I actually, over this past Thanksgiving break, I texted my friend Elizabeth from high school. And I was like, do you remember this day in class? Um, because I keep returning to it and like how all of the students of color were offering up like their experiences of racism. And then white students were literally saying like that didn't happen to you or if that happened, it wasn't racism, um, which I think, you know, like that, I, I think that a lot of white people have a moment where they're like, oh my God, like, you know, this happens. But I think not a lot of white people maybe have such an obvious or like literal or explicit one like that so early in their life. Um, but another thing that I've kind of returned to with this moment is that I was talking with, I don't know if either of you know who Syra Rao is, um, but she's like a racial justice educator who specifically works with um, educating white women um, and she's from Colorado. And I had like a session with her where I was talking about whiteness in academia, right? And she was sort of asking me questions about this. And I said something along the lines of like, oh, I know, I knew racism was real because I knew my friends of color had experienced it. And she was like, yeah, but that's not, that can't be it because ev almost every single person knows a person of color. And so there has to be more to how white people realize how prevalent racism is than just like knowing someone, you know, or seeing someone. And like, she kind of pushed back on that for me there when I was telling her this memory from high school. Um, and so I think that that moment for me is the moment that I think about really strongly when I think about like the beginning of my white identity development. Um, but I also think that that was like a really long intro to the fact that I don't think it really became crystallized for me until college. Um, and like the hard thing is there's not any one moment you know, and there's no one factor of explanation. And so I think that like, I think a lot of times and I know for me as a white person, a lot of times people are like, you know, how did you get on your journey? Or like, what was the one book or the one person you knew or that one show you watched or, you know, this one aspect of yourself or like that led you to be on this journey. But the reason why I'm sort of going on about this is that there's too many things, right? Like, I think there was sort of this confluence of, you know, um, having close friends of color was part of it, certainly. Um, I think also like having some experiences with like certain kinds of theories very early in high school, like a lot of, like we talked about colonialism in my senior year high school English class, you know? And I think that those kinds of like access and then obviously going to Westmont, like, you know, there were plays that I saw and books that I read in class and people I met and, you know, events I attended um, and movies I watched and obviously also like political events too. Um, but I think like my white identity journey really, I feel like I've been going on for too long, so maybe I should pause. But <laughs> I, I feel like my white identity journey like changed like the kind of fulcrum moment was when I got involved with racial equality and justice at our college. Um, and the reason why I got involved with that was because there was an event on campus where that REJ, Racial Equality and Justice, um, hosted, where I was the only student who attended who hadn't been required to attend for a class. Um, and uh, it was like a documentary screening. And so obviously the leaders of the org were like, who's this person who's the only person who came of their own free will? Um, and afterwards, one of them, Lindsay, was asked to like get lunch with me and talk with me. And so we talked and she was like, well, I think you should lead REJ next year. And I was like, no way. Like, I cannot do that. There's no way. I don't know enough. Like, I don't know anything. Um, and I felt so nervous. And so, it, like, 
fragile in my whiteness. I don't necessarily like love the concept white fragility always, but I do think that's a good way to describe how I felt when I was talking with Lindsay at that sort of first lunch we had. And she just sort of continued to kind of push me and say like, no, I think that you don't have to know anything yet and you should do this anyway. And so I did, I don't really even remember how I decided to do that. Um, but I decided to join um, racial equality and justice, which was part of the intercultural programs. And that I think really changed the way I relate to my racial identity, like permanently, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I really appreciate you sharing the breadth of all of those experiences, because I think, like you mentioned, for white individuals and people of color, it doesn't ever boil down to one moment. And I remember in my, um, I can't remember if it was my intro to social class or if it was when I took our race and ethnicity class, but I had an assignment where we were supposed to say and explain the very first time we acknowledged our race. And I had the hardest time because I've always been a brown woman in America. Like I, it, I can't think of a time when I, I wasn't. So when did that really click? Um, but I wanted to go back to something that you mentioned, and because I do think this is really um, prevalent to the conversations that I've had with other white individuals or have seen when, you know, famous white people make statements about something racially insensitive that they've said, um, but this, this idea of colorblindness. And um, I think there was a shift um, between, okay, racism is wrong, so we're going to we're going to look at colorblindness as the solution, um, which is actually just another layer of the problem. Um, so would you mind kind of sharing um, a little, your thoughts on, on that? Yeah. I mean, I think that in terms of colorblindness, like I think a lot of, as you said, like, I think a lot of us now understand, especially I think over the past couple of years that colorblindness is sort of another technology of white supremacy and of like racism in the United States specifically because colorblindness like pretends that there is no difference, right? When like there is, you know, we know statistically, mathematically, and I'm not saying, I'm not meaning like differences between the races in or like different racial groups or anything. Like that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there's a statistical, we statistically understand that there is racism, right? Like racism is invasive across so many different social structures. It is baked into and written into the policy with tangible mathematical effects, right? That's what I'm talking about when I say like that we know there's difference, right? Yeah. And there's also like cultural difference and like difference in heritage and difference in cultural practice. And I think that for me, colorblindness is an issue not only because it denies that, you know, it denies that there could be meaning for those things for people, right? Like colorblindness, colorblindness denies that there's meaning to racial and ethnic identity. And then subsequently sort of moves into this place where it's like, oh, well, I don't see color. Well, then that means you might not see how someone's being treated differently and worse because of their race or ethnicity. And so I think that colorblindness is damaging not only on like the interpersonal level where someone might feel like their experiences and their heritage are being erased or sort of ignored and also damaging on like a structural ideological level because if you can't see, if you can't quote unquote see race, first of all, that's not true. Like we do, we do, you know? And second of all, that how are you going to see or acknowledge racism if you don't see race? And so I think that it's, I think of colorblindness as being like both like interpersonally problematic and also like structurally and ideologically problematic. 
for all those reasons. Yeah, no, and I, I do want to bring up, because this comes up for me every time I think of colorblindness, um, a conversation I had with a guy that I was dating, and he is a white man, and I had asked him, have you thought about the fact that we're in an interracial couple, or we're in an interracial relationship, and he said no, and I asked him, okay, well, like, have you thought about how your family would respond, or, and they're like, he's like, no, they, they, like, love you, they think you're so smart and pretty, and blah, 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 and I was like, okay, but you're not, like, you're not seeing that me being a person of color does impact our relationship, and it, it doesn't matter that they just like will love me anyways. Like that's that there's, a, there's something problematic with you not seeing me when you see people who look like me out in society, or like when you hear people use certain languages or um, phrases or verbiage that has to do with people who look like me, if that doesn't register, then you don't see me. And I think that I don't, I don't like, I wasn't necessarily like, Oh, he's a bad person. I just, my first, I was like, there's a certain level of colorblindness that he's not even aware that he has taken on and I think sometimes there are people who are super over and say things like I don't see color we're all the same and I think for a lot of other people it's far deeper and they don't necessarily use that language but still have that perspective if that makes sense I agree that colorblindness is not necessarily like so simple or overt and I think that's also part of sort of the the dangers of the way that people think and talk about racism in general is that like people know these sort of example microaggressions or macroaggressions, or they know like behavior in their brain that they categorize as racist or overtly racist, right? And then they also say, well, I would never say I don't see color. So I must not be colorblind, you know? And so I think that is, or they'll say like, oh, well, I would never not give someone a job because of their race. And, or like, I don't know anyone who's in like, a white nationalist group. I don't know any racists, you know, like, and all of that, I think is part of it in that like people are less inclined, especially white people, mostly white people are less inclined to recognize subtler forms of racism um, or sort of more like baked in or structured aspects of racism if they're not like a literal hate crime or someone like using racial slurs or saying even now, like things that we've come to understand are harmful. Like I don't see color. Yeah. Well, and I think too, um, it kind of reminds me of this, the same sentiment that Emily and and I have shared when talking about other things. Um, it, you can be a a white person and be married or in a relationship with a person of color. And that doesn't make you not racist. Like, it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that you don't still have biases or that you don't like, like you said, like there, it's not that you get away from these like baked in things just because you happen to be intimate with a person of color. Like that experience is still not yours. And you being in close relation does not give them any more privilege or power by proximity like that. And you don't get rid of yours by proximity either. Yeah. And that like goes back to what I was saying that, you know, Syra Rao told me, which was that if the, if the only issue was someone feeling closeness, friendship, romantic, whatever family with people of color, then like racism would already be solved. Almost every person knows or, and is close with at least one person of color. Right. So clearly that's not it. Like the solution is not merely interpersonal, although analyzing your interpersonal interactions is very important. Like that is also not the end of racism. Like it's not the end of racism for white people to date people of color. In fact, that's often a continued site of racism. It's not the end of racism for people of color to 
become, you know, like to, for people of color to go to a predominantly white college, like especially like, where's the power? What is the policy? What are the structures? What are the social formations and the social relations? What is the history? You know, there's so much more to it. And I think that it's easy to sort of stay in the register of the interpersonal or even the personal um, rather than looking at the structural and not realizing that those things are very like intertwined. Right. Yeah. And I, I think, um, not to harp on this, but I do think that's definitely where that stemmed in that conversation with that prior, um, boyfriend, because I kept thinking like my experience has so many layers to it. And if like you seeing it as, oh, my family will love you because we have people of color in our family already, like that's, that's not enough. Like there's so many other things and you just don't see that yet. And I don't fault you for it, but I'm going to see myself out. We're not going to be dating. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. being able to see that, um, as a white individual, I think is, can be really hard. And so I don't, it, I don't know, it leaves me kind of murky because where can you hold people accountable? And then where can you say, okay, you, you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like this is kind of the perfect segue into talking about how to be a white ally, because this has been obviously such a conversation for this past year with all of the racial um, injustices going on in our country. And I feel like from conversations I've had with other white people, there's just a question of what do we do? Like, what is kind of our role in this? How do we respond as people who don't know the lived experiences of people of color. And so maybe we can talk about that a little bit of just what that even means and can look like for people right now. Yeah, yeah. And so first of all, I guess like, and I think this is kind of a roundabout way to get at this. So sorry for everything that I ever say being like, you know, the longest possible route to get there. But Mm -hmm. I do think part of this is I, I don't like the term ally. Um, and in like many contexts. And I think that's because like the word ally comes in as like the idea of separate groups that are choosing to align for some kind of common interest or from some shared goal, right? Like that's how the word ally works in any kind of like military or war metaphor. It's like, oh, we're different and we're going to come together to do this other thing, but we mostly have separate interests other than this one interest, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think to me, the ideal, uh, and obviously that's not what people mean when they say ally generally, right? But I do think that that metaphor speaks to the ways that white people generally approach this by saying, I want to continue to pursue all these other things I want and do. And also I'm going to like be with you on this one thing, you know, or I'm going to come alongside you on this one thing and kind of, and I think that to me, my issue with that is that whiteness and white supremacy is going to be a part of the conversation and a part of the structure in all the other things you want to do. Um, And so, I mean, I don't even think there's a term that for me, like replaces ally in a really effective way. Um, I, but like, I know some people prefer accomplice or co-conspirator or things like that, but I think there's, we could similarly like problematize those terms. But I think that to me, what the word ally fails to capture is that to genuinely I think be a white person who is going to have a committed relation or like a commitment to anti-racism or anti-racist action and racial justice and equity that requires that you examine and divest and sometimes even reject some of your other previous commitments. 
And I think that that is to me like what the word ally doesn't capture in what it takes to be like a white person in this conversation, because to general, to genuinely be a white person who's going to participate in like racial justice and the sort of global movements and solidarity toward racial justice, you have, there's, you will have to give up something. There is no white person who is positioned where they could fight white supremacy without there being any pushback, right? Or any internal dissonance. And so I think to me, like the kind of framing that I always use for myself when I'm like checking myself is, am I showing up over time with my body and my money and my time and my energy? Um, And I think that that is sort of the framework I use for myself to say like, okay, is my body in the space? Am I at the protest? Am I in the meeting? Am I on, you know, am I on the committee where it's appropriate for me to be on the committee? Am I in like upping the enrollments in these classes? Am I attending workshops? Am I, you know, supporting the businesses of people of color? Is my body there? Right. And then also like, where is my money going? Right. Like how am I like quote unquote voting with my dollar, you know, and all those (laughs) other kinds of slogan things. But like when I get to charity, what kind of charities do I give to? And you know, what kind of businesses do I give my money to and things like that? Um, Am I giving to mutual aid? Um, And in terms of like energy, like, am I organizing? Am I organizing in a way that doesn't override or put me in a position of power or put me in a position to like accrue more social capital, but am I organizing in such a way that I am supportive of the efforts that already exist, right? And I think that to me, I'm like, I wanna put my time, my energy, my body, my name, my any kind of social power or capital or privilege that I have accrued, I wanna put all of that into this, right? And that means rejecting white supremacy in all different aspects and arenas of your life. And that means you will lose a lot, Um, both in terms of like, like friends and family, but also in terms of like generational wealth. Are there ways that we can give that up? Um, Are there jobs that you would might maybe would choose not to take scholarships or grants you might choose, or even other jobs you might choose not to apply for? Like there is, you, in order to, to divest from whiteness, you are going to be acting against what society tells you are your own best interests. And so to circle back to the ally thing, that's what I think that word doesn't capture is that if you're going to be a quote unquote white ally, you should stop acting in the interests of whiteness, which are in some ways like your interests. Yeah, well, and I really like that too, because I think that honestly, one of maybe the first steps, whatever you want to call it, is even like really humbly acknowledging that you do benefit from the system right now. And just like you said, are you willing to maybe not benefit from these some ways, whether it be any of the reasons that you or situations that you just said. But then I think also too, I love when you go back to putting your body, time, money, energy into it, because I think after this year, like we've all been in quarantine and had time to kind of maybe think about some of these things critically, whereas it's like, okay, now over the next five years, are you still going to be committed to this? Are you still going to want to be invested, finding books, talking to people, listening to podcasts, you know, watching documentaries, learning, or is this kind of 
a quarantine thing and you're just like I'm an ally right now great I went to protest I voted how I thought I should awesome I did my part you know yeah absolutely and I think that to me this comes to something that I was talking about with one of my friends in relation to like labor rights and like workers movements like your politics are not imaginary like your politics have to be a practice right and so like put your body in the space, put your money behind the cause, put your name and your reputation and your social life in the cause, right? If you're not willing to do any of those things, then maybe step back and say, okay, if I can't, if I'm not giving my time and my energy and my body and my money, then maybe I need to take some time to educate myself, right? And if I can't take time to educate myself, am I working to interrupt things on like a low level? Like, am I calling out racist jokes? Am I like, you know, interrupting problematic sort of, I guess, like frameworks or schema that are occurring in my day-to-day spaces. And if you're not putting your time, your body, your energy, your money, you're not working to educate yourself or others, and you're not working to sort of interrupt these structures of power in like the, at the micro level, then like, this just isn't your politics. Like if you're, it's not actually, then it's an imaginary politics. It's not a real politics, right? And if all you can do is like share infographics on your Instagram story, that's not actually your politics. That's just something you are doing because you feel like it's the right thing to do. And I feel like it's important to be politically honest. Like you have to, if you are not enacting your politics, it's probably not actually your politics. And I think that that is something that's like hard for a lot of white people, myself included sometimes. Yeah. Well, that was a perfect segue because next I want to talk about social media activism, um, particularly from white individuals. I think overall we've seen an uptick in social media activism um, since last summer with the Black Lives Matter, um, Black Square. I wasn't on social media during all of this, but was briefed on it. Um, And there just seems to have been an increase on it. I know Emily and I have views um, of our own about it, but I would love to hear Olivia from you first. What your thoughts are on social media activism, I think in general, but then particularly from white individuals. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I want to reject any straightforward narrative that social media is inherently good or bad for like justice movements. Um, I think it's to have kind of that narrative that social media is either the revolution itself or social media is inherently harming like you know, abolitionist or revolutionary efforts. I think both of those are reductive. Um, So I don't think it's either, but I do think that I have several issues with like, especially Instagram activism. Um, And I could just say these like as quickly and concisely as possible. First of all, I'm like, who is creating this information? Um, Mm -hmm. Is it vetted in any way like where is this information coming from and who are the sources second of all who is having social capital accrued to them by this a lot of times it's white people making attractive quote-unquote graphics about things that then get viral sort of shared across instagram right um so like who is that benefiting like what kind of content creator is this quote-unquote you know um you know what is the motivation behind the post I think is another other question that like you can't really know, but I think is worth people examining themselves, especially white people. And then like another issue that I like have seen a lot in this, you know, everything that I say I've like learned from others, but I think the like quote unquote memification, especially of black people who have been murdered by the state, um, that is I think very troubling. Um, and these sort of ways that 
like obviously, you know, these movements of like say her name or things like that, um, or like rest in power, those movements originally often come out of, you know, these sort of liberationist or abolitionist spaces. But I think seeing these things be co-opted, especially for profit um, by white people, when whether that profit is like social or capital is I think like deeply troubling. And it makes me think of like, I saw this interview with Breonna Taylor's mother, where she said, it's been a year for you all. And it has been that day for me every day since, you know, and I think that who benefits, you know, from someone's image or someone's death being commodified and turned into this like image for consumption across social media. Like that to me, I think is a, is a question, right? At the same time, I want to say that I think there are a lot of people who are doing first great educating and second great organizing on social media. Like I have learned a lot from people I follow on Twitter. And I have also seen like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook being used as a place by which people can connect each other and organize like mutual aid funds that go viral. Like that is amazing, you know? And like, so I don't think it's unilaterally one thing or the other. But I am skeptical of the cutesy, artsy, millennial aesthetic, like infographics that everyone shares on their Instagram story. And like, I can't know whether the people who share them, and like I've shared some of them before, like, you know, so, but I think I've gotten to a place in my life where to me, that's not the work. Um, it, it can be a part of it or it can contribute to it. But I think my main worry is one, when people are using this sort of, when especially white people are using justice issues to profit in any way. And when social media posting gets confused for the work itself, um, because it's not, unless you are like, you know, a person of color educator who is using your platform, you know, to create sort of educational content, that's different, I think. But when you're just sort of an account that makes these posts every time, anything racially inflected happens and is in the news that to me that's not that's not like liberating anyone you know that's just creating a, like a meme that a bunch of white people will share because it makes them look good or feel good about themselves and that maybe is harsh but that's my opinion so yeah no I appreciate you saying that and I think also if you are somebody who are using those um resources that people of color are putting out there donate to their link tree or their Patreon or like pay them for that education because it is not their, it like, it is not their experience and their brain is not for you to pick for free like that there, if they're creating those resources, pay them for it. Um, the only thing I want to add to this, because you and I share very similar views to this. Um, I just think it's the bare minimum. Like it, I am not at all impressed by anybody who's white and posting their black square or something on their story. Um, because how do I know you don't still say the N-word when you listen to a rap song? Or how do I know that you didn't also still vote for Trump or that, you know, you still do X, Y, like there's just so many other parts to it that I just, I'm not going to give you a gold star for doing the bare minimum. Um, and there's some people who really just like to have a good time and like not talk about any kind of social issues on their, on their social media. And I'm not going to like dig them for not not like not posting something you know what I mean like I think how we interact with our social media varies but it makes me think also too of Angela Rye was on a podcast I was listening to um and they were talking about um white allyship and different things like that and she said 
one, stop, you know, trying to get information from me for free, you know, go find the wokest white person, you know, and ask them or Google it or whatever. And that's also a bad paraphrase, but her saying, go find the, you know, the wokest white person, you know, made me think, okay, well, what if someone is the quote unquote wokest white person in their community and they're putting out resources? then I'm glad they're doing that. But again, it's just the bare minimum. If they're not also having conversations with their racist uncle or having conversations with whoever, you know, will have those conversations with them. I just don't, I don't know. To me, it doesn't hold enough weight either way. Yeah. Well, and I feel like too, just going off what you both said, because I mean, I completely agree with you guys. I think we've all seen in both our personal journeys with social media and then others like our friends and who we follow that it's super easy to hide behind a screen and it's super easy to put out what you want and what you think people will appreciate or be receptive to and I think that's been a really easy kind of sore to fall on for people this year of oh the, like I can do this and it's one click and all I know that people are gonna appreciate this or people are gonna think just like a tiny, tiny bit higher than me. But we all know that social media allows you to do that with the most minimal effort possible. So just like you were saying, Brie, like the bare minimum effort. And then are we living that experience? Like, are we like actually trying to think about that? Or is it literally just a click to retweet or a click to repost? Because that may be what it all is to some people and they're okay with that, you know? So I don't know. I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. And I think for me, that like goes back to like, is this really your views? Like, is this really your beliefs, you know? And I think that I, and like, I do want to be sort of generous with the fact that first of all, people use their social media in different ways. Right. And second of all, I think there are people who, for whatever reason, you know, are not in a position where it's necessarily safe for them to be overt with their views. And I think I'm thinking especially of like, you know, people in the queer community um, in, you know, in some cases, like, I, I just think there's context, right, where people don't feel like it's, you know, necessarily safe for them for whatever reason. Um, although I think that like, that's something that should be examined too, right? But I think that the idea that there's like inherent moral goodness in retweeting or sharing something to your Instagram story is just like, that's such a flat idea to me. Like if there's any good associated with these like posting, it's like, I mean, I think it's, if there's any good, you know, it's the possible education and, you know, mutual aid, you know, paying creators for their work, uh, you know, wide spreading, the wider spread of ideas, right? But I think that there's also like a potential danger and this is kind of jumping onto something else too. But like, I think with like police abolition, right? Or prison abolition, those are like complex topics and political positions that have histories and people who have done significant work articulating what it means to really hold that position. And it does not help for like random white people to be like, oh yeah, abolish the police 
peace emoji, but not really actually just like maybe defund them, but, or maybe not even defund them fully, but like a little bit, you know, like that, like, I think we so often, especially like over the past year have seen kind of that sliding scale where people will be like, oh yeah, a cab or like abolish the police or abolish the prison industrial complex kiss emoji. And haven't done any research in like what it means to actually hold that position. And like those political positions are political like positions that are imagining the world in a fundamentally different way. Like to say, I'm going to imagine the world without carceral punitive violence is requires so much more work than being like hashtag ACAB. You know, it has to mean like genuinely, like what does it mean? Then how do we deal with violence in our communities? What do we do, you know, with all of these, like what does justice look like if justice is no longer carceral or punitive? And what do we do with the fact that our schools function very similar to prisons in some ways. And what do we do with like the whole way that our society has conceptualized discipline? And like all of this, I think are questions that first of all, people way more educated and intelligent and creative and imaginative than me have already thought through and positions that are not easy to take in a way that's lived out. And so I think that while it's good that some of this language has entered the mainstream, right? And we have seen some actual moves to defund the police in certain cities. And that's great. And partially related to the way that that phrase caught on. But at the same time, I think that it's like when everything gets memefied, like people think that it's their politics when they haven't done any of the work to examine whether they actually live that way or whether they even truly believe that. And so I'm like, you know, like if you don't really believe ACAB, then don't say that, you know? And I think that that is, I don't know. It like, I think it seems like it's good to have a lot of people say something that you seem to agree with, but I don't think it's always good. Cause I think that like the memification is very often also like a watering down, I think. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think too, um, I, I don't know exactly what it is. Cause I don't think it's just social media, but everyone has like really short attention spans. So I think for some people, it's probably really satisfying to be able to like see a quick graphic and think, oh, I understand what this means and I agree with it. So I'm going to like repost it. And like you said, like that's just like scratching the top of it, right? It's the pretty flower, but you have no idea what the root system is underneath it. And that you need to have that root system though. And that also plays into how, like, how are you voting at the local level and at your state level and at the federal, like there's so many parts to it and we're missing a bunch of it when we are looking at this cute little infographic and decided that we're going to share it. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, Yeah. And I'm also like, you know, what does it mean to make all these things visually appealing? I think that like racism is not aesthetic, you know, but it's aestheticized. mm -hmm. Right. And I think that that is, well, I guess racism is aesthetic for a lot of white people. So I guess I kind of retract that earlier statement. Like I think, but, Mm -hmm. and obviously there are aesthetics of racism and aesthetics of like white supremacy and white nationalism. Right. But I mean this in the sense of like the you know, the plants and the little squiggles and the mustard yellow and burnt orange Mm -hmm. and millennial pink and forest green. And, you know, like I, I think like everyone listening can probably picture exactly what I'm talking about. Right. And I'm like, what does it mean that we have to put this information in that package? And that is better. You know, I think partially because of short, like attention spans, but also part of like visual appeal that that is more widely shared than like the actual books or the actual work or the actual initiatives that these concepts came from 
I think that's kind of concerning to me, although I want to think about it more about why and how that happens, but I'm concerned. Well, and I think I just thought of this when you were speaking, so we'll see how, like where this goes, but I think to me, that just is another form of reiterating that when it comes to some of these, um, well, not some all, if when it comes to dealing with racism and like being part of anti-racist work, white people get to opt in at a way different level. They can sit back and make those cute infographics, but like for people of color, this is like our day-to-day lives. Like you don't need like black people to post Black Lives Matter because they know like that's just their lived experience. But like white people don't have to think about it if they don't want to. They can sit back and make a cute infographic and then go about their day and not think twice about it. And so I think that's like another level of what you said earlier, which is that like, sometimes you don't even know, like you're not even realizing your whiteness, you as in like all, not you. Well, yeah, but also me sometimes. True, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I have so many thoughts, so I was pausing, sorry. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like we've covered so much here and I feel like we've <laughs> given so many people good things to think about. And it just all brings me back to the idea that like, you can never think that like, oh, I'm here. I'm good. I've learned everything about it. I'm good in my racial identity. I understand what it means to be white. I can like just understand it at a structural level, whatever, like that never stops. And so even thinking about how we were just talking about social media and everything, like someone can look at a graphic and maybe follow other content creators, people of color, whatever, to learn certain things and then say, oh, cool, I'm good, I get it now. But it's like, no, like this is a lifelong thing where like society's gonna change. I don't know where we're gonna be in 20 years, 30 years, but this is gonna be evolving for everyone, you know? And so like this never stops. I, don't, I feel like that just like from everything that we've talked about is a very key thing to think about just that, like, you can never be satisfied with where you're at. Yeah. And I think related to that, like the end of white supremacy and like the end of especially like anti-blackness would be the end of the world as we know it. Like that would be, and I think that a lot of times people imagine it as like separate. And I think that, you know, this goes back to what I was saying about allyship too, but if we were to truly end racism, that would end the entire current world order, right? And that would require an entirely new imagining of how everything works. And I think that that speaks to the fact that there is no way to arrive without like a total transformation that is beyond you. So it's like impossible to ever arrive personally um, until maybe in that like world to come, right? Like, you know, in that like the world to come that I think many people have been imagining and dreaming and reconceiving and reconceptualizing, right? But I think that if you, if you ever think you've arrived, you've fallen back into the trap, you know? Um, because if, if you, or I guess I should say, if you ever think you arrived and the world order has not completely changed, you have fallen into the trap, you know? Like what, and I think that it's, it's our imaginations are often so limited, right? Where like, I think a lot of people, the answer to the question of like, what would it really mean to like give land back, right? I think a lot of people don't know what that would really mean. Or to say, what would it mean to abolish prison or to abolish the police? Or like, what would it mean for anti-Blackness to no longer structure the world, right? Like that, those questions like do not have straightforward or easy answers. And I mean, I to me, there's like the straightforward 
answer of like, I want all those things. And I also don't know necessarily what that would look like. And it doesn't matter because I like, am like, I think it doesn't matter that I as a white person don't know what that looks like. I keep thinking about, there's this unbelievably great article, decolonization is not a metaphor that talks about how decolonization has become metaphorized and come to stand in for other forms of justice. But and it's by um, Eve Tuck and Kay Wayne Yang. Um, and they sort of end with this place where it's like, it's, what, what happens to white people when we give the land back is the an irrelevant question that focuses on like the feelings of white people. We will figure that out when we give the land back, right? And so I think that that to me, like that's something that keeps me or helps me to continually be like upsetting my own thinking patterns um, is to say like, nope, the world has not completely changed. So therefore like the work is not done and the work will not, be done until we are in, you know, whatever the world to come imagined by people other than me will be, you know? Yeah. Well, it just made me think of how, if we were like, for your example, give land back and what would happen to white people. That's a clear example that like racism exists and like white people know it because they don't want to feel yes like black people do, or they don't want to feel like that. And so even that notion of oh my gosh, then we'd be in their shoes. And mm-hmm. that's a bad thing. That sentiment right there is so clear that it just blows my mind sometimes when it's like, okay, you're thinking that you don't want to be in that space. So why are you putting other people in that space and then yes. going about living your life? You know? Yes, completely. Yes. Yeah. There we've, we've covered so much. I know we can keep going. Mm-hmm. What, what would you say Olivia, on top of what you've already said about, you know, if you think you've arrived, keep pushing. Because the other thing too is I think people are really quick to think of racism just within American society and ours is, you know, it's our own demon to deal with. But this is a global thing. Every every country, every society has some form of it. So even if America got it shit together, you know, we got, we got things to do and other places to fix. So um, what would you say regardless of where people are at in their journey with their white identity, what are either pieces of advice or uh, reminders or resources or anything that you want to share with um, your white peers? Yeah. I mean, I guess I can only really recommend like things that have been meaningful, like to me, you know, I mean, I don't think I'm in a position to like offer any kind of concrete answer other than like the things that I have found to be like, meaningful in my own journey, but I would say don't buy white fragility, buy a book by a person of color. (laughs) And I think that there's so many good ones also not to like, you know, do a little bit of a plug here, but I work for a nonprofit, which is the alumni Alliance for racial justice. And on our website, we have like a whole list of potential resources that have been compiled by our board uh, that have been meaningful for them in their journey for both personal racial identity development and also racial justice and equity. So go to aarj.org and I think it's under current projects and resources maybe, Um, but we have a whole list of books. Yeah, books, podcasts, movies, documentaries, TV shows, you know, people on Instagram, people on Twitter. Um, And so I think that's a place to start. But I think in terms of if I were going to name like a couple of things that just like completely upset the apple cart for me personally, the one I mentioned earlier, decolonization is not a metaphor. The article by Eve Tuck and Kay Wayne Yang. Um, 
In the Wake on Blackness and Being by Christina Sharp was a book that completely like changed my entire life. Um, I think, oh, uh, the the film, um, I Am Not Your Negro by Raoul Peck about um, James Baldwin um, and some of like the work that he did, I think is another one that I would really, really recommend. Um, but I think that I would also recommend like listening obviously, but like showing up in spaces, getting involved in like local efforts and going there to be like, to do the grunt work, um, I think is a big thing to say like, okay, I think a lot of times white people have the instinct where they're going to be like, oh, I want to start an Instagram or I want to start a project or I want to start a, you know, an organization or I want to start, you know, X, Y, or Z. But then the, but I'm like, most of the time someone's already doing that. And so how can you show up and do the grunt work for the people who have been in that space already? I think that's a really important thing for white people to do to like pick up and do the grunt work in things that already exist, right? So reading, educating yourself, you know, are there classes or webinars online? There's a lot of these things. There's more webinars than you would think there are. I took a, um, I took a civil resistance webinar thing that was run by a couple different activists um, who that literally was like training you in how to start a nonviolent resistance um, like campaign basically. And so you can find these things and it was free. So you can find these kinds of things online, like attend webinars, read books and make sure they're by people of color, um, not by white people and to pay people for their efforts, um, especially unless they're specifically asking for it to be free. Um, to pay people for what they're doing and for their time and their labor and their energy and their expertise. Um, yeah. And like, I love following people on Twitter because that just brings different, you know, as much as we've kind of problematized the idea of social media, having like a collection of perspectives that are often disagreeing with each other makes my own brain kind of, you know, do that work. But yeah, that's a lot of things. But I think essentially what I'm saying is do it in all parts of your life, you know, like have there not be any part of your life or any space of your life or any section of your time where you're not thinking about it. Um, and I think that, and surround yourself with people who are thinking about it too. Yeah. And we'll link the AARJ website and maybe some of those articles or books links to those too, because I think it's so important and not one thing is going to hit everyone. And so finding what's going to hit you and what you're going to really get to gel with and dive deep into, I think is so important. So we have covered so much and I'm so happy because I feel like this is a conversation that needs to happen and it makes white people uncomfortable, but it's so needed. And so I just really want to say thank you, Olivia, for coming and talking about it, sharing your experience and your opinions. Um, I think our listeners are going to really find a lot out of it. I hope so. And like, I also hope that, you know, if there's anything I said that was not, you know, productive that I hope that everyone can problematize that and help me to be better in the future, you know, but, and I'm not just saying that, like, I really do mean that. Um, and I think that, you know, I am only, I said something similar last time I was on, but like, I am only where I am because of like the genealogy of others who I know and who I don't know, you know? And I think that I would be, you know, so honored to bring other people into that, you know, like I would be so honored to bring other people into like the lineage kind of that I have come from. And also if people find it, you know, through other ways, great too. But I think that I would, you know, I would love to move the needle for any white person, as many white people as possible. And I, because I'm so grateful for all the people who move the needle for me, um, who I know and don't know. 
And yeah, I want to like, I want people to be able to talk to me if they want to, like if there's white people who want to talk to me about this, I don't know how we would do that, but I would love to talk to white people who want to talk to me about this. Yeah. I mean, we can link, uh, whatever contact information yeah. you feel comfortable with. Um, yeah, sure. I can give like, I don't know, like my Twitter and my email, maybe I feel like yeah. those are platforms yeah. where I'm comfortable being contacted. So Perfect. yeah, my Twitter and my email are good places to contact me if you don't know me personally. And I'm, or even if you do. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. And I really appreciate you putting yourself out there for that because the conversations are so important and like being able to actually be in a dialect with someone and go back and forth and dissect it is so valuable and you can read books, go to webinars, listen podcasts, but until you like vocalize it and hear someone else vocalize it, it's super powerful. So thank you so much, Olivia. I really loved this and I know everyone else will too, but yeah, thank you guys all for listening so much today and check us out next week for another episode.